0: I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zernial, our co-host, is on special assignment today, and I will be flying alone for this hour. Delighted to welcome into our Caregiver SOS on-air studios a fellow we talked to maybe three, four years ago. We don't often invite guests back, so he obviously did a great job, and we're happy to have you here. Spencer Brown is joining us today. He's got a lot of experience in family caregiving, works as a caregiving manager, and consults with folks as a Master's of Science in Gerontology and a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Baylor University, Go Bears, and has worked in this field for a whole lot of years.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you for having me today. It's nice to see you. It's great seeing you again. As
0: uh, Carol Zerniel, also a gerontologist, says, if you ever want to stop a conversation at a cocktail party, folks say, hey, Spencer, what do you do? And you say you're a gerontologist. They walk away.
1: They do, or they say, what on earth is that? Exactly.
0: So why in... Earth did you choose that field?
1: I chose the field of gerontology due to a personal family experience when I was a freshman at college. My grandfather had an aging episode if you will. He had a stroke and so I was an informal caregiver being around him and my grandmother. Just I was there. I was physically present in that town and my parents one day called me after having a visit and suggested a career in the field of gerontology and my response was what is that? And I began pursuing avenues in gerontology from that age till where I am now.
0: Most people, and we talked about this last week on Caregiver SOS on Air, uh, fall into caregiving. If, if it's a, a spouse, a daughter, a son, they get that phone call from the emergency room, uh, from the uh, NICU who say, hey, look, we got a serious problem here. Uh, you need to come help.
1: And suddenly you're a caregiver. That's right, and some people who don't realize that they are a caregiver find out by that phone call, that sometimes very dreaded phone call that they never thought would come.
0: We don't educate folks about caregiving. It's not a course in high school. Most people don't take it in college unless you go into gerontology. Uh, What can we do that would be better to prepare folks, because we're entering a period of time now uh, where we're going to need more and more caregivers, 65 Million caregivers across this country were running out of family caregivers, and ten thousand baby boomers turn sixty-five every day. So we're looking at hundreds of thousands of folks who are going to need caregiving. Not me or you, of course, but they're uh, uh, out
1: there. That's right. That's right. Well, it, it's very important in my professional experience and my personal experience as well, is to reach out to those professionals. Those people who are serving family caregivers, they may be trusted family estate planning attorneys, financial professionals, people's pastors. Those are the people that are in the trenches dealing with families who are in a caregiving role. And I think it's very essential that we help educate those individuals who are, li- who are experiencing life with those caregivers day to day.
0: Now, you mentioned your grandfather had a stroke, which uh, created that need for caregiving. Uh, Locally, uh, an icon in this community, uh, Tom Frost, recently had a hemorrhagic stroke, bleed in the brain. Uh, It's been very serious. He's 90 years old, seems to be slowly but surely pulling through, but you never know at that age. Uh, Strokes are something that uh, most folks don't really understand, except they know they don't want one.
1: Yes, that's correct. They don't know necessarily what the signs, indications are that a stroke may be happening. When they've had a stroke, uh, someone's had a stroke, what is the likelihood of it recurring? What can they be doing to prevent it from uh, managing their medical care? There's a whole facet of things that, that people are confronted with, whether it's a stroke or a cardiac event or whether it's diabetes, a very common medical condition that people don't, often don't know how to address. And then, of course, dementia. dementia. Dementia is very significant. We are seeing a significant increase in dementia with Alzheimer's disease accounting for at least in the 70 percent of all the diagnoses of dementias. and our aging population is growing and we're seeing that change family situations significantly every day you
0: know it's interesting if folks think if well you know if I live to 80 or so and don't have dementia I'm good but 80 years old means 50 percent of folks who turn 80 will develop dementia
1: Right, a- age it's is age-related. Age is the biggest risk factor. I also serve as a volunteer for the Alzheimer's Association here in San Antonio, and people will ask, "Oh, my, my mother has Alzheimer's disease. So does that mean I'm twice as likely to get it?" And we say, "Well, there could be some indications that heredity has a part, but advanced age is the number one risk factor for getting dementia."
0: That's why I eat a lot of broccoli. Keep I it figure up. Broccoli is going to provide my prophylactic. To dementia.
1: Excellent. The one vegetable my son ravishes is broccoli. Well, that's so, good. So I'm hoping he will he will stave off dementia, too.
0: Everybody remembers, I think, when uh, President Bush commented on broccoli. He never ate it, never liked it. That's uh, Bush 41.
1: Right. Yeah, I remember that.
0: Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what you do as a consultant uh, to families who are getting into the business of caregiving and the kind of issues that that you see uh, that, that are certainly solvable.
1: Yes. Well, family caregivers find a consulting company like ours, Accountable Aging Care Management, because someone tells them about us. Someone knows that they are in a caregiving situation and will say, we know of, a, of an organization, a professional company that can help. And then some of, uh, some of the common issues, uh, the, the, the most common issue is a family that is overwhelmed with what are their options to take care of someone. It could be something such as making the decision to take the car keys away from mom or dad because of safety concerns. It could be an issue of getting the right medical care or geriatric specialist. It could be, when is the safest time for us to consider moving dad out of the house into a facility? There's something that that caregiver is struggling with navigating the process. How does it work? What are my choices?
0: Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our special guest, Spencer Brown. And we're talking about issues involved in family caregiving. And it's a field in which he has been trained in and works in. Carol Zernial, our co-host, is on special assignment today. So it is me and Spencer. I can tell you, take the, car away, the keys away from uh, someone who shouldn't be driving story that I, I suspect is more typical than not. My my mom and dad at the time both were alive and my mom uh, had injured herself, fallen, broken both her wrists. Not uncommon. She's in the hospital and, and my dad who still drove he was in his uh, mid-80s should not have been driving. Uh, and uh, the hospital got a lot of complaints about <laughs> dad pulling it in out of the parking lot because he never looked. Uh, and one day he had three accidents, not serious but bumper benders and, and what have you and so we talked to the social worker at the hospital my brother Jimmy and I and she said she can help with this and she said let's have a meeting with your mom before we talk to your dad so we sat down in, in mom's hospital room and, and we said uh, you know mom we got a problem here uh, dad's driving is uh, not only threatening his life but the lives of others and, and we need to uh, get him to quit driving and she was on board Well, you're right. We need to do that. Uh, You know, I'll be as supportive as I can. And so we got dad there, social worker, my brother Jim and I, and my mother. Now, unfortunately, the social worker came from the school of thought that anybody who's in their 80s is deaf. So she began the meeting yelling so dad could hear her in the loudest voice possible. Saul, that being my dad's name. Mm -hmm. And uh, it went downhill from there. And we said, you know, we're concerned about your driving. And we think maybe it's time that, uh, you know, we get you someone to take you where you need to be. And he got so intimidated, so frustrated, so emotional that my mother, who was on board, immediately said, what are you all talking about? He's a great driver. He can drive forever. Don't worry about it. And, of course, that was the end of it. He finally stopped driving when he lost the keys and couldn't find them.
1: Yeah, it's those kinds of situations, Ron, that family caregivers are sometimes at a loss how to have that conversation, how to bring that concern to the table. You've got sibling dynamics, you've got long distance family members. Everyone has an opinion about things. Yes. How do you have that conversation and bring some cohesion? And that is exactly how families reach out to a a team like ours at accountable aging.
0: So let's take that issue. What what's the best advice Uh, for taking the keys. Ultimately, um, if dad hadn't lost the keys, my brother was going to disconnect the spark plugs.
1: Well, that that is one of the options. And I would say for different situations and families, disconnecting the, the car cable so it won't work, that could be the best option. For some, it is actually removing the car from the premise so it's not visibly noticeable. For others, the perfect solution might be not letting the family be the bad guy and taking the car keys and dealing with mom or dad, but having the doctor be the bad guy. For others, it may be calling the local department of motor vehicles. I had a client who, whose doctor reported a concern after a seizure she had had and said no driving for six, just six, a period of time, maybe six months or so. And it was reported she went to, had to take the driving test and the written test. It was not the family. It was not those close relationships that had to say, we're taking this away from you. It was the Department of Road Vehicles that actually revoked the license. So I just gave you a few examples of, depending on the situation, the solution could be different.
0: Now, is that something uh, as a case manager you can get involved in?
1: Yes, that's exactly what we, we help as care managers assess a family caregiving situation. Like we've discussed already and help them c- tailor a specific set of options we assess and we make recommendations about how to best ad- address the needs and how to keep that individual safe and independent as so you as function
0: possible. function as someone like a mediator uh,
1: yes uh, we do we we often will say facilitation you know we're mediation sometimes has a legal connotation right. but we are an objective third party specialist in aging the profession is called aging life care and so we can help a family that can't see through the forest to even see that tree, we have that objective perspective that can say, this is what we assess, This is what we think are some of your options. We can help you navigate this process.
0: We'll talk more about this in just a moment. Spencer Brown is with Accountable Aging. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM. The answer. We'll talk about managing long-distance care needs. We'll talk about when and how to move someone out of the home and a whole lot of other issues that deal with caregiving. Right here, oddly enough, the show is called Caregiver SOS on Air. Ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Cora Juke is here, a nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
2: You know, we talk about a lot of things, such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure. But we also talk about social issues, such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
0: And it's something that uh, you're newer to. WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
2: Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office. And I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
0: Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke. I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The Answer. Be There. And remember, this program, Caregiver SOS On Air, follows immediately after WellMed Radio. On 9.30 a.m. The Answer, WellMed Radio at 5 p.m. Sundays, and Caregiver SOS On Air at 6 p.m. Plus, there's more podcasts of all of our shows are available to you at no cost. And if you are on a Mac, iTunes will deliver those to you at absolutely no cost, and you can uh, uh, search... WellMed Radio and Caregiver SOS on air through iTunes and they will deliver them to you on a weekly basis. WellMed Radio comes to you on 9.30 a.m. The Answer as does Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zernial, our co-host on special assignment today and we're delighted to have a chance to talk with Spencer Brown. He's with Accountable Aging. I'm glad you got the name tag on and works there as a case manager. And we were talking about issues involving families that often become very complex and difficult uh, to solve. Uh, I've got a friend who uh, I've worked with over the years who was caring for his mother. And he had a sister uh, living in Dallas. Uh, and, and occasionally she'd agree uh, to help and come in and relieve him or mom would uh, go up by bus to Dallas. Uh, but it didn't work out very well because she wasn't interested in providing that kind of care. And my friend was just be, being becoming overwhelmed. Uh, how do you get siblings to participate more fully. That's That's a a nice smile you ought to see uh, here. Yes, yes,
1: that's a very loaded question. Um, Family dynamics uh, are a significant part of this caregiving experience. Not everyone is naturally inclined. Not everyone is available and uh, nearby to do it. Not everyone wants to do it. And so when you have two or more siblings, we find it's important to – capitalize on what each sibling wants to do, what they're able to do, and try to come up with a plan to allow them to use their strengths. Some and you may, can help with that. We can help with that. And usually we are brought in and hired by families because they've got different pieces of the puzzle. Some's handling the medical and going to doctor appointments. Someone's paying the bills. But they've got these compartmentalized areas that they're doing. But they want a more comprehensive coordinated effort and they will reach out to us to kind of make sure that every need is being addressed by family, by paid help, by churches, by whoever. So uh, we, we help families figure out who's the best, what are the best options, who are the best people to help with those needs.
0: I grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio and my brother Jim uh, still lives there and uh, before my folks passed away he was providing a care for my mom, uh, who was living alone at the time, needed to go into an assisted living. And I remember one day I called, and uh, I have no idea what prompted me to say this, but I said, you know, you know, Jim, I'm, I've got just a little suggestion about uh, something that might help with mom. He paused a moment. He said, you know, that's great. She'll be on the next flight to San Antonio. I've got her clothes all packed for you. And, and you can not only implement that suggestion, but you can take care of her, too. He said, Jim, I don't want to provide any suggestions to you. You're doing a great job. I'll stay out of it.
1: Well, you're, you're, you're describing another situation that we see, see often, and the power of a third party that is not the family, that doesn't have those types of obligations and responsibilities. No emotional connection. No emotional connection <laughs> can help facilitate. I know your initial word was mediate, but we can facilitate and coordinate the best care plan, which means what are the needs that someone has and developing a plan to meet those needs.
0: And in dealing with this kind of sibling family dynamics,
1: you see that a lot. We see that a lot. In fact, when I first started with Accountable Aging back in 2010, I thought every client that I worked with had at least three siblings, two of whom saw things differently, not necessarily feuding, because usually families want what's best, they just don't know what that best is right and they ask us to help figure that out and the one who's providing uh, the care
0: often 24-7 in, in their home uh, has all the stress and all the burden uh, and sometimes don't get any help from siblings
1: that's correct that's correct and sometimes those siblings that don't live in the same town or live with mom or dad or grandmother they, they don't see and when a family member may come for a visit at the holidays or a special occasion, or just any occasion, and they're staying in the house, they often will see things that they never knew existed. It's that immersion, and they will appreciate sometimes what their brother or sister has been telling them. Um, that, that we see that often. So how do you know when you need a case manager, and uh, how do you find you? How, how do you know when you need someone like us? Well, it, it is a, a value and a benefit that families hear about from people whom they trust. When people are as a, serving as a caregiver and they are overwhelmed with taking the car keys away, coordinating the medical, you can fill in the blank. When they're overwhelmed, they usually go to somebody and say, I'm dealing with my mom and these are the issues. If that person knows about the profession of aging life care in our company, Accountable Aging, they will say, I know a company that you should talk to to have a conversation about that. So someone tells them, I think you need this, you're overwhelmed, you're asking questions, you're living a thousand miles away, you can't do this anymore the way you're doing it. And then a family will call and have a conversation with our professional staff who will listen to the story and we will tell them the way a third party objective care manager can be of value to them. We can tell them the value that might be present and a family then will internalize that and say, oh my goodness, You mean someone can actually go to the medical appointments and coordinate, make sure all the pieces are working together, and send me a report about what's transpiring, keep me up to speed on all that? I'm sold. That's enough for me to hire you. So the value is always in the eye of the customer, that family Mm -hmm. member, that guardian, whoever the person is that's hiring
0: us. So what are some of the other services? Because that's, uh, especially for someone who lives out of town, but even someone who lives in town where uh, the care recipient lives, uh, not everybody has a job where they can take off willy-nilly to go to doctor's appointments. Correct, correct. In fact, I met the other day with a, uh, a fella, and we're going to get him on Caregiver SOS on air, uh, who uh, for 10 years cared for his mother. Uh, and he was in a job working for a large insurance company that didn't like him taking time off to go to doctor's appointments. said, you can't keep doing this which was a big problem because there was no one else to take her. And so he ended up getting another job where he made clear before he accepted the position that here's what he comes with, here's the baggage, and they were fine with it. But if you're available to go to those appointments, and if the care recipient is comfortable with having a third party go, uh, that solves a big problem for people.
1: It does. It does. It solves a big problem that we see, Ron, and that is, Keeping track of all the moving pieces—the doctors, the caregivers in the home, the appointments, the you—you you can, the nursing staff there, anything—that uh, the coordinating all of those stakeholders, all of those interested parties—that's what family caregivers we find struggle with the most. See, I could have used you. You could have used me.
0: And I'll tell you why. And I've talked about this on the air. So, you know, I don't care about HIPAA. There's no problem. I'm talking about myself. Uh, I had a knee replacement surgery. Uh, and I wasn't able to get around. I had several follow-up appointments, and my wife, who's got a wonderful job and who's very busy, is a self-admitted, non-enabling caregiver. Get there yourself. Uber can take you, right? Yes. Let alone if you want a bottle of water, you can walk across this room. I then was diagnosed with uh, AFib, irregular heartbeat, mm. and for a period of several weeks, I had 8 million doctor's appointments, uh, to which she did not have the time to go literally didn't have the time to go so i went and then uh what i should have done was taped the conversations and we've even talked about that uh on this show and others about how valuable that would be and i've got a smartphone i do a lot of interviewing and use that phone i didn't think of doing that in those doctor's appointments so i would get home and and give maybe half of what transpired
1: right when you're why didn't you come help me where were
0: you when I needed
1: you? You didn't call, Ron. Oh. You need to call. I'll, I'll give you my number after Spencer. the show. I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But so that, that, that's, that's how we can be of service uh, to family caregivers. And is they, they contact us, someone tells them about us. Or we are finding, as you might expect, more people are finding us online at www.accountableaging.com. That is our company's website, and that's you can be directed to us in all of our Texas markets where we serve. And, and when you Google for that kind of help, what do you Google, and, and you come up? Well, I would say, since I'm able to give you some inside scoop, if you want to say uh, geriatric care management, which used to be the profession's name, right? Uh, the profession is now called aging life care, care managers, senior care manager. A lot of people are googling like that. But and you if, all come up. We often come up, but AccountableAging.com mm. is our company's website. And our national association, I'm one of 2,000 aging life care professionals in the United States and in, in the whole country. And AgingLifeCare.org, AgingLifeCare.org, mm. you can search for an aging life care manager like me in Salt Lake City, Utah, New York City, Las Vegas, Miami, more urban areas. but that's a, a helpful website as well. And what does it run? It is run. The profession of aging life care is a fee for service. So those of us that are doing this with a professional company are billing an hourly fee for the expertise to help families caregiving. So And it, is it covered by insurance at all? It is typically not covered by insurance. However, there are a few long-term care insurance policies that may have a Carve out for what's called care coordination, private care consultant, different terms, and we have had success getting some policies to right. pay. But basically, it is a fee for service opportunity helping families. It's an hourly paid, and and generally, what does it run an hour? Probably in the in the United States, in different areas, probably you are seeing between 100 to 175 dollars or so. Say one to two hundred dollars an hour depending on where you are in the United States, is probably what you're expecting.
0: And that's a 60 minute hour on like a shrink, which is never
1: 60 minutes? Well, you know, that's, that's correct. Okay. And, and this profession has lots of nurses, registered nurses, professional social workers, and the like. And so you're, when you hire an aging life care professional, a company like Accountable Aging, you're hiring a professional health and human service expert in aging. We're going
0: to come back to this in just a minute. I'm Ron Aaron. Spencer Brown is our very special guest here on Caregiver SOS on Air. Carol Zerniel, our regular co-host, is on special assignment today. So, hey, it's me and Spencer and Roland Ruiz, our technical director, and that'll work. This is Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. <laughs> We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And remember, at the end of each and every one of these programs, Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us for Take 10. And we discuss an important issue that has psychological ramifications. And that comes in the last 10 minutes of every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs. We're talking with Spencer Brown, who is a managed care and health care expert. The company is Accountable Aging. And we're talking about ways in which... Uh, if you're in a situation where you're a caregiver or someone you know is a caregiver, their company and others can provide the kind of help that you may need. I, I want to talk a little bit about how-, how you deal, and you had suggested to us that that was a good topic, dealing with new medical diagnoses or a crisis. All of a sudden, you know, mom or dad or your spouse uh, is diagnosed with, like in my case, AFib out of nowhere. Yes. And my wife got the call and said, hey, you've got to take him to the emergency room
1: right yes the 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 first time you hear a diagnosis of afib uh, of dementia will send a lot of people into this this fog of I don't know what the very first step I should do is, and so that is can be that can be very overwhelming for the person who's received the diagnosis and for the family caregiver right I mean, It's a very stressful time and trying to, to delineate a plan of attack to deal with that to manage it, to work through it, is very challenging. So we see that a lot in our in our work with family care teams.
0: Any tips on how to deal with that?
1: Well, w- w- one tip that, that I would say f- for families is to assemble the team. You, it takes a team, it, it really does take a village to help. But if you have several siblings, if you have a good primary care physician, if you have some good support, formal and informal, Start identifying who those organizations, informal and, and not, would be. That, that is a tip to identifying and creating an action plan. Start educating yourself on how you can start addressing those health issues, the crisis that may be the fall and mom's not safe at home anymore. That could be the crisis. It could be lots of things. So identifying your team and starting to build from there to get the help that you need because one thing I've learned working with family caregivers for over 23 years is you can't do it alone, and you, are, you can't do it alone very well, uh, and so get help. And yet a lot of people try to do it alone. My mother did. My dad
0: uh, developed dementia. She provided 24-7 care. Uh, when we tried to get help uh, to assist her, she said, no, 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 go help someone who really needs it. She needed it but didn't want to accept it.
1: Yes, and and again- That's typical, I suspect. It is very typical, and so the value that someone sees in having help from a sibling or a doctor is different than the next person's perception of what that value is. Not everyone appreciates the same thing, so I I would say to any family caregiver with a new diagnosis or a crisis, determine what is the most important to them, to him or her, to that family, and let that be the springboard not everybody needs to have a family meeting of the whole clan every time there's a reunion. Not everyone needs that. Some families really need to. C- they will not make a decision until they've got all parties on the same page, in the same room, on the phone. And others are just comfortable with occasional email. Right. Hey, I saw a mom this week. I paid her bills. I noticed the refrigerator. There was some spoiled food, so I'm concerned about nutrition. Some Every family works it differently in... And we interact with the gamut of families. And
0: one of the things that uh, I've heard experts uh, suggest is to let the care recipient, uh, assuming they're not knocked out with dementia, participate uh, in these decisions. Don't pretend that grandma, grandpa, mom, or dad are, are simply immobilized sitting on a stool and you talk around them.
1: That's correctly. I, I learned in my study of gerontology and in my personal life that it's better to talk to an individual then talk around them or about them. And so if if someone is able to participate, however that looks, let them participate. Hello, I'm here. I know. Yes, that's why when I go to a lot of doctor appointments, if I'm there as the advocate, the coordinator, I always like when a doctor talks to my client who's the patient rather than directing everything to me or to that daughter, because there's an assumption you have someone attending the appointment to help you remember, Right. that must mean that you can't follow anything I'm saying. And that's just not true in every case.
0: And when the attention is misdirected, uh, do you point that out and say, hey, talk to the patient?
1: Yes, we do. Part of our role is to help advocate for the client. If the client is able, we can gently say, I'd like, I think our client, uh, Mr. Jones, Mr. Mrs. Erneal, uh Mr. Brown would be glad to answer that question. And then if I need to make a contribution to help facilitate that, I'll be glad to do that. But I do not go in and speak for the client uh, if the client can speak for himself or herself.
0: I had a situation a few years ago where uh, someone was in the hospital uh, and the, uh, now they're hospitalists, but the internist who was in that hospital uh, was talking to the patient Uh, talking in in rapid fire using very technical words that were totally unintelligible to most people. And then he turned around and leave. Uh, And and I chased him down the hall and I said, excuse me, you're not going to appreciate this because I can see that in your demeanor. But the patient didn't understand a thing you said. And you didn't listen to a thing that patient said. It might help to listen. That advice was not appreciated.
1: Well, that is very good advice. Listening before speaking. Yes, we're List- trying to teach our kids that. That's right. We're trying to teach them every day. Yeah, and learn that our lesson ourselves.
0: And for uh, physicians, uh, that can be tough sometimes.
1: It can be tough. Physicians, busy professionals, whether they're medical professionals or otherwise, they're seeing lots of people in a day, and they don't may not have. 45 minutes or an hour to devote one-on-one. So when we are attending, when an aging life care professional like myself is attending appointments, however long or brief they may be, we help make sure that the key issues get brought up. And if they don't get brought up, then we make sure that there's follow-up, that the communication, the coordination, those lab results do get back from the cardiologist to the primary care doctor. We can coordinate those details because they're silos. They're, you know, these black holes that information falls into and and whatnot. So we're there to help make sure that we don't drop a lot of things.
0: You know, one of the nice things about being a, a Wellman patient is Wellman has its own cardiologist, its own uh, rheumatologist, its own podiatrist, its own uh, you-name-the-ist, uh, and they're all on the same computer system. So uh, whatever... Uh, lab results and uh, diagnoses and what have you uh, end up in the patient's regular file for the PCP primary care physician to see. There aren't silos; it's all together.
1: Right, and that's and Wellmed is one of those unique organizations that does that. And so, another piece of advice that I would give in a medical crisis or something similar is, as you're assembling a team, try to consolidate. Don't have your medications at three and four pharmacies. Try to have your, your physicians in a network where they actually can communicate, whether it's an online portal or a network like a WellMed or other organizations, so that you don't go into a situation with inherent issues of communication not happening between and providers. And
0: that often happens. Someone leaves the hospital with a bunch of new prescriptions, has no idea whether to take the old and the new together.
1: That's right. I had a client who went from the hospital with a breathing mask and a tube, And I went to go visit her, and it was just sitting. Someone had just dropped it off. Because she had no idea what to do. It was just sitting there on the table, and she did not know how to put it on or why she would put it on or what it was for. And she had the written discharge instructions, but that did not help her get the medical, the breathing assistance that she needed with this equipment. Interesting.
0: Yes. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the issue of independence and uh, how we can help both the caregiver and the care recipient uh, achieve independence and and when the time may be uh, to uh, send someone to assisted living or nursing care?
1: Well, I think independence is one of the things that we all fight for the most, whether it be having the ability to drive our car when we want, take care of our our basic daily needs, feeding, making our meals, doing what we want. So one of the things that I would say to look for in terms of promoting independence is focusing first on an individual's abilities, what they can still do, rather than focusing on what they can't do. Naturally, 80-year-olds, not all 80-year-olds are doing the same things they were doing when they were 40. Some are still bungee jumping and doing exciting things, but not everyone is. So there's some natural changes. Look for things that are different now and try to maximize that person's independence maybe by modifying the situation uh, maybe by bringing in some support and people hate to use a cane or a walker but looking at resources to allow them to stay at home but if safety's a real concern and their nutrition's not good, their refrigerator's bare, if they're falling a lot, if they're leaving the house a lot unattended and don't know where they are down the street, those are some warning signs that considering how to promote their independence may not be best in the home environment anymore. Right. So you've just gotta look for changes that are happening in an individual. And we coach families to, to look for things like that. And of course, we're visiting clients and we're looking for things like that and saying, I don't believe this is a safe arrangement anymore. These are some options to let them stay at home longer and be more independent or move to a, a licensed setting like a licensed setting like assisted living or nursing home, places that no one really dreams of going to.
0: And one of the issues, of course, uh, is that whole question of socialization. Someone who's independent and and at home often sees no one, talks to no one other than the caregiver, uh, and they're very isolated.
1: Yes, they are, and and sometimes... Which is a negative. Yes, it it, it is a negative for lots of people. And I have seen many clients in my career for whom the socialization of being in a congregate setting brought them back to life. Having three balanced nutritious meals a day helped fuel their bodies physically, and the socialization fueled their body emotionally, spiritually, holistically. And so that that's a significant part of socialization and and that's one of the hardest things for people to to evaluate when thinking about leaving the independent setting of of their residence their home where they raised their kids their grandkids came to visit and now they're looking at a, a retirement community any place it doesn't matter what the place right. is a different place but there can be wonderful benefits as a former nursing home administrator no one ever wanted to come in there and live there but a lot of people that lived there had lots of quality of life that was really That's a good point uh, really, really significant and help the families who made those gut-wrenching decisions feel a little bit or a lot better about making those hard caregiving decisions i
0: remember my mom went into an assisted living facility outside of cleveland ohio where she she, she really couldn't care for herself at home alone anymore uh, and it had all the activities she, she never had dementia was you know as smart as could be as she used to say my body's just getting old Uh, And I asked her one day, I said, well, how is it there? Are you having a good time? And she said, Ronnie, they are all old people. And I said, well, Mom, so are you. Not like me. Oh, no. And she never really bonded with a lot of people there. Yeah.
1: People don't usually internalize and see themselves in that role. We talked about early about not seeing yourself as a caregiver when you really are doing a caregiving role. People that... Are in an older chronological age bracket, yeah. don't view themselves as old. It's those other people. Exactly. It's those other people. I would never, I can never be in a place as a, a walker. And then they get a walker and they say, oh. So it's, yeah. it's how you see yourself is a big part of it as well. Now we are flat out of time. How can folks get a hold of you if they want to do that? People can, call, can contact us. Our website is www.accountableaging.com. .com. That's probably the best place to look. Our okay. telephone number is 210-568-7934. And we'd be glad to be a resource for family Perfect. caregivers around Spencer Texas. Brown, thank you very much.
0: Appreciate you coming in. Thank you. For Carol journey. I'm Ron Aaron. Up next, guess what? Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
2: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
0: And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
2: Well... I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
0: Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The answer, be there. But we promised Take 10, and here we are on 9.30 a.m., the answer at the end of each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. We welcome Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addictions and caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial. And Dr. Jamie, as you go through that caregiving process, I think of the poem as you reach that pathway? do you take the one less traveled or the one that everybody's hopping down? How do you decide what are the right decisions as they come up during the caregiving process? Stay at home, go to assisted living, go to nursing care, bring in home health care. There's a ton of things you have to decide.
3: So so what makes uh, you know what are the elements of good decision making um, as we go along the caregiving journey?
4: Wow, this could be a full-hour segment, couldn't it? It could be
0: well.
3: You know, yep. life is so. We were we were talking to um, a guest, and they were talking about how much more complex things are. I mean, not just the home decisions, but medical decisions. So you know, we're bombarded all the time from legal, financial, care, medical, all all these different kinds of decisions. You know, what what do we do to kind of ground ourselves and give us time to make the best decisions we can? You know,
0: even the treatment options, depending on the disease the affliction, uh, have so
4: multiplied. It's so true. Caregivers often need to make such tough decisions on, you know, under such tough, kind of challenging conditions. And it's interesting, you know, every person is different. Every person has a different path of self-awareness, of self-esteem, of confidence. Every situation is barred by so many different confounding factors. Uh, my personal feeling is that the first thing you have to have is respect if you will, and dignity for the person that you're taking care of, and and be able to bring them, if they can, cognitively handle it immediately into the picture after, and this is after, we've actually brought a professional in who can lay out all of these difficult decisions for us
3: clearly. All right. So let me untangle that. The first thing we want is somebody who can help us lay out the path in front of us. And who would that person be? A little bit be? of a map. Who would that person be?
4: geriatric care manager is a fabulous place to start, uh, licensed clinical social workers who often are geriatric care managers who have a background you know, in senior care, they have seen the gamut, if you will, of people, of families, and of, of, of patients, if you will, and what may be the best path for them. Um, or at least to give you the whole potpourri of different decisions and outcomes that occur.
3: So, So we have the person on, we identify someone, and we can call our local area agency on aging to help us locate a professional that's going to help us lay out the plan. And then you said something very interesting. You talked about getting kind of getting our head in the right place thinking about the person that needs the care and, and thinking, you know, I'm going to approach this situation and this person with dignity and respect. They are not my child. They are not someone who is less than me. They're because they're sick, they're down, and because I'm not, I'm up. You know, we're, we're going to get our head in the right place.
4: Absolutely. I think to make the best decisions, Kelly, You really have to, A, have self-respect for yourself, which is meaning, again, a path of self-care, but you really have to have respect for the person you're taking care of. As soon as you have these conversations all around them, it's so kind of personally and clinically condescending, and it makes your loved one just feel lost and feel like a child, like they're losing their
3: independence. So, and that was the third thing that you said was, you know, surprise, actually bring the person getting the care into the conversation, nothing about us without us.
4: That's, that's absolute. That's personal respect. And also, then you won't also be second guessing decisions. I mean, when you do that, of course, you again, and we like last week, I think we did the show on, on killing a messenger. Um, you have to make sure you can't, you're not the only person to be doing this. When you bring a loved one in, do it strategically. Make sure a that you have the physician aboard, or a social worker, or nurse practitioner, um, and make sure everybody is aligned in terms of conversation. But whatever you do, do not discount the caree, the person with the chronic illness. They have to be a player in this process. These difficult decisions may be tough for us to make, but it's even tougher for them when somebody else is making them
3: for them. Well, what do you do, let's say, ooh, we didn't realize that mom was totally relying on dad and queuing off of him, and dad passes away, and now we realize that mom has pretty severe dementia and is not really able to make her own decisions, it's like the big kind. What do we do when the person we're caring for either becomes so incapacitated and frail, you know, for whatever reason has a stroke, that they can't talk to us? What do we do in lieu of that? Well, all,
4: all those what-ifs are decision trees, and that's what we said first. Bring a professional in who has actually gone through this process with countless patients. And that's not difficult to do. As I said, often I, I refer us to psychologytoday.com and says find a therapist. But make sure you go to somebody who is actually strong and background with caregivers and people, obviously, who dealt with chronic illness. That's really the first place I would go and find out this decision tree. Guess what you may find? This is what somebody else found. But to that point, again, a support group will also be able to uh, give you a lot of uh, information to make good decisions.
0: Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air's Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, and our very special Take 10 expert, Dr. Jamie Heisman, is with
3: us. Well, so, Jamie, what do we do uh, when we're having to make you know, really complex decision. We talked about the complexity of some of the medical decisions where it's not really clear cut. I mean, the, the nurse practitioner, the physician is saying, you know, here's the pros and cons of three different things that we could do. Um, you know, what do you do when it's just tough?
4: That's when I would bring a whole family conference in. I would take all the information. Again, this is the adage, don't ever assume Ask as many questions as you can to that physician, to that nurse practitioner, to the clinical social worker. And obviously when you're in a quandary and a conundrum, all of a sudden there's just maybe too many decisions. Bring the entire family in. And again, I'll always say this, if you can, with a third party to be able to facilitate the emotions of it. And have a conversation. And again, include your loved one, of course. If your loved one can cognitively participate,
3: so if this gets into the realm of life and death decisions, is there a role for you know some sort of spiritual person? If the you know the person we're caring for has a, a very strong faith,
4: I think you're on target here. I would not only bring the spiritual person in, I would bring the medical person in, I would bring the social person in. You couldn't have enough people who are experienced who have gone through this, offering us information to make the proper decision. But you're 100% right. We can't start where we think our loved one is. We have to start where they're at. And if they are faith-based and they're in the middle of uh, of a community, if you will, of of, of pastors and and preachers and ministers, always include them.
0: It's not a bad idea. Get them all in the same teepee and hash it out.
3: Well, I mean, I'm thinking of right. our, our own well-med care model where we surround the patient with a whole team of different people um, in life, you know, as a family caregiver. It, you know, two heads are better than one as long as several of the heads aren't beating you up, uh, you know, while you're trying to make these tough decisions.
0: Are there wrong decisions yeah. out of this? Can you Can you make a wrong decision and can you then fix that?
4: I think you can, of course. I think that's the informed consent part, Ron. I think you have to be very upfront with everybody, that you can be making the wrong decision. Of course, the caregiver that's dealing with issues of death and dying, you know, you probably don't have a second shot uh, of, of biting that apple. But I think that everybody in the group, the family, if you will, the professionals, I think everybody has to understand we're human beings and not human doings. And so we can try something. Let's say we try a skilled nursing facility and it doesn't work. Well, let's keep that out there. Maybe it's an assisted living facility. Maybe we need to redo our house. But you really have to have a consensus, and again, include the loved one, and then go
3: from there. Well, I think you make an, an important point, because there are decisions that you, you do need to undo, and people have brought their loved ones home from a facility or changed facilities or decided um, some sort of physical hospice location is better than staying at home because the medical needs are great. Um, So, you know, that can be, uh, it's okay if you don't get it right the first time. Not all the time, but, you know, you can, there's some latitude there. You get to do the best you can.
0: I think that's the best advice, Jamie. Do the best you can. Do
4: the best. Again, this perfectionism is not about caregiving. That is possibly the worst way to go into it. Also, this is one good reason why people should have advanced directives. On the death and dying, maybe we don't have to refer to a lot of other people. Maybe we just have to refer to our loved ones' wishes.
0: I like that. And if you don't have an advanced directive, do it today or tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. Thank you to Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll catch you again next Sunday at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer.
4: You've been listening to
0: Caregiver
1: SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net.
0: And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer.